Welcome back to another episode of Laser Graves. I am your co-host, E.K. Wimmer. Hey, Elvis Kite. I'm Mariah Rose. <laughs> Elvis Kite. Yeah. I just watched Elvis, the John Carpenter made-for-TV movie with Kurt Russell from 1979. Uh, King Kurt. Yeah, that's a good movie. Is, I'm not an it? Elvis fan, but man, it's a really good movie. Weirdly, I've been talking to our daughters about Elvis a lot lately because they want to know if he really died going to the bathroom. <laughs> and they keep bringing it up. I didn't realize how quick that film came out after his death. That's really surprising to me. Really? Yeah, but it's not 80s, so it doesn't matter here. Never mind. Welcome to Laser Graves. This is a podcast about the 80s. And this week we are going full 80s. Mm-hmm. Something that I don't know how for two plus years now, this just completely was off our radar until you said, hey, what about? And we were like, whoa, wait a minute. Yeah. This week we are talking about the one and only Bob Ross. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hello, I'm Bob Ross. If this is your first time with us, allow me to extend a personal invitation for you to get your brushes and, and your paints and paint along with us each show. And if you've been with us before, please allow me to thank you for inviting us back for another series of painting shows. So when was the first time that Bob Ross entered your radar, your like circle of knowledge? <laughs> um, he's like just one of those pop culture collective consciousness characters that I don't think I can peg down when I first remembered seeing him. He's just always been with us for all time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I always thought he was really fascinating, though, even mm-hmm. as a child. As we're going to discover in this episode, I'm in the 90th percentile of people who had no interest in painting and just wanted to watch him paint and talk. Oh. I loved it. I would put it on like so many other people, and it was super soothing. I thought he was interesting he seemed really fun and i was kind of just transfixed by the simplicity we'll say of the painting yes but i can't pinpoint when i first saw him you um i don't have a specific time that i remember learning about him but i had like a a second awareness of bob ross oh a reawakening or like a an a better introduction so i knew who he was for sure But I got into some big old trouble in high school. Real big. I'm not going to say what it is here. It was really bad. (laughs) Really, really, really awful. Don't DM us on Instagram. We're not going to tell you. No. And my punishment included, because my parents were good parents. They were trying to get me on the right track. They made me give up uh, TV. And eventually they gave me PBS back. I had to listen to very few radio stations, but they also signed me up for painting lessons. So I didn't take painting with Bob Ross. He was he was gone by then. However, I started taking these painting lessons and I could come I would come home and I couldn't like go see anybody. I couldn't hang out with my friends, so I would watch PBS. It's like the ultimate punishment for a teenager. You want to know the best part? I do. Yeah. I'm one of the 10% who have made a Bob Ross. Oh, really? Uh Uh-huh. Interesting. Did you set up 
an easel and paints and paint along with him? No, but I long to take a paintbrush, dip it in mineral spirits, and then whip it like I don't even care that there's anything else in the room against my easel. Or if I'm feeling real sassy to kick the bucket and hit it on the trash can. So yes, I loved Bob Ross. Mostly I would just watch him because he's mesmerizing. Anybody who has ever watched him is like, I can do it. He makes painting accessible. Yeah, but he also just had this super calming effect and most people would just go to sleep or just mellow out. He was like pot if you couldn't smoke pot. You would just put on Bob Ross and chill out. Dude, I never thought of that. I'm a super chronic insomniac. And at that point in time, I was going to sleep watching Unsolved Mysteries because Robert Stack's voice is so soothing. Never occurred to me that it would be healthier to listen to Bob Ross. That was a a large percentage of his uh, watchers would come up to him and tell him how much they helped him. They they helped them sleep at night. Oh, that would kind of hurt. No, I think he was okay with it. I think it was just par for the course. Oh, gosh. Poor Bob. What a what an interesting guy. Well, I'm sure all of you know who Bob Ross is. You've probably last minute, like I have, dressed up as him for Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> I'll post a photo on our, on our Instagram. Mm-hmm. It was a pretty good costume, though. It was solid. Yeah, but everybody knows who he is. He's just part of pop culture. And... We thought it would be really fun to just take a look at this character because he is quite the character. Yeah, you know what's interesting? As we started delving in, I was sure I knew stuff about Bob Ross, but really, he's kind of a mysterious... He's not even a hippie. I thought he was a hippie. No, not at all. And <laughs> yeah, and he also was incredibly private too. Yes. And so even when he would give interviews... Actually, I read something really interesting that... They asked why he didn't give very many interviews. And he said, well, nobody ever asks me. (laughs) Isn't that weird? So he was willing to give interviews, but he was also very private and pretty closed off. I actually heard, and I didn't know where to put this in my research, so I'll just say it now. I heard that he was so private that he moved at one point back to Florida from where he had been working. And PBS lost track of him and had no idea where he'd even gone. And they had to, like, hunt him back down. That's pretty funny. Yeah, that's great. So he's surprisingly mysterious. But should we get into it and discover, unravel the mystery of Bob Ross? Yeah, you just uh, go grab your pick and fluff up your hair and Mm -hmm. grab your paintbrush and let's get ready. Let's get ready to paint a portrait of Bob Ross's life. Very well done. All right. Robert Norman Ross was born in Daytona Beach, Florida. Norman. You coming in already pretty hot with the facts. Yeah. Just put it in your back pocket and bring it out at a party and everybody will be so impressed. He was born in Florida. And for some reason, even this was surprising to me. I thought he was like a wilderness man. I just in no way envisioned him in Florida. But he was born there, 1942, uh, October 29th. All right. So mark your calendars. His father was a carpenter and his mother was a waitress. It's also noted in several of the sources that I looked at that his father was part of the Cherokee Nation, though he couldn't really find a lot of information about Mm. that. But I, I did see it in several places. So it's worth noting. And if you want to look into his family lineage to discover that and suss it out, by all means, <laughs> yeah, do so. That. <laughs> but he spent most of his youth in the Orlando area. 
this is, though, you have to kind of change your idea of what the Orlando area is because this was pre-Disney World mm-hmm. and they didn't have an international airport at the time. So it wasn't then what it is now. When did Disney World come into Orlando? I don't know. It would have... 60s, maybe? Yeah, it would have been much later because Disneyland was first and I think that was the 60s. Yeah, I don't know. I we're not disney experts no if only it was an 80s theme park we could have covered it (laughs) (laughs) but he he was growing up in orlando uh his parents divorced when he was not even two like one and a half and both of his parents remarried other people his mom had another child whose name was jim so he had a half brother jim and then interestingly his parents both re-divorced and remarried each other later which is kind of a strange love story yeah it's like one of those um children's movies with scenarios that never happen in real life right like a parent trap but then the real joke was on uh his mom because his dad died a year later ross dropped out of high school in ninth grade so his education is only to ninth grade that's really something to consider when we Uh, or like reflect back on as we go forward here because this is a man who has a ninth grade education he began working with his father doing carpentry Mm -hmm. and it was this time he lost his finger the index finger of his left hand and i mentioned this because i noticed it while i was watching the videos and i am sure most eagle-eyed viewers did he holds his palette but every so often you you see he's missing a, a bit of his finger so carpentry accident it is true and there's a little funny story about that which is because his look which we'll get into changed so dramatically oh, yeah. from his upbringing people who knew him actually pretty well only recognized him because of his missing finger. They were like, it's definitely him because they saw the finger missing because his look was so different. Interesting. Okay. We should also mention this doesn't really, there was no place to casually drop this in, but he was working with animal like rehab and wildlife rehab throughout his, his whole life. It was just one of his side passions and actually possibly his longest passion in life. <laughs> really and truly. He even... did bring on a lot of animals to the show, didn't he? Yes, he did. And we'll touch on that a little bit. But he had like a pet armadillo at one point. Oh, man. I wonder what was that like? I don't know. Because I would love an armadillo, but I think you can get some weird... What is that skin disease? Oh, leprosy from armadillos. Really? Yeah. Bob joined the Air Force, and we'll get to that here in a second. But he also married his first wife when he joined the Air Force at 18, married his first wife, had two sons whose names are Bob and Stephen. And Bob Sr. divorced his wife in 1981. That's kind of important just because we'll talk about his second wife later. Okay. Well, yeah, as you mentioned, with him being 18, he was young. 1961, decided to join the military, because what else you got going on? Yeah, he dropped out. Yeah, so he enlisted in the Air Force, and he wanted to fly. He wanted to be a flight crew, but he was 6'2". He was tall and flat-footed, so they didn't let him be in airplanes. And missing a finger. I feel like the Air Force (laughs) would be like, no, 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 you've got only three quarters of that finger. (laughs) Right. So he actually ended up becoming a... Medical records technician. Oof, man. Tough stuff. 
You only joined the Air Force with the ambition to become a pilot, I think. Maybe. Definitely not to become a records technician. (sighs) But that's where he got started. An important job. He was stationed in Florida at first, which was pretty nice. And then he got relocated and transferred up to Ellison Air Force Base in Fairbanks, Alaska. Mm -hmm. As he said, this was the first time he had ever seen snow in his life. But made quite an impression on him because those landscapes came way back into his work over and over and over again. He really did like those. All snow all the time. Snowy mountains. His son actually went with him to Alaska. He has two sons. His first wife kept Bob and his son Stephen went with him. Oh, interesting. So he was up in Alaska and he really stayed in Alaska the whole time. Now, coming from a military family, unless I'm missing something, uh, I don't get as an active duty soldier, how he was, or airman, I should say, how he got to stay in one location yeah. his entire career. I'm just, I'm a little confused because you usually get transferred every four years or so. Yeah, I mean, he spent a good chunk in Florida and then just Alaska. That's it. Yeah, so I don't know what the story is there. I didn't really care to look into it. No. But needless to say, as a records technician, he had a lot of spare time and was pretty bored. Mm -hmm. And so one day he saw that there was a class being offered up at the USO club for painting and he decided to sign up for it, took the class, didn't really like the style that was being painted. It was kind of more abstract and stuff like Mm -hmm. that, but he really liked the feeling of painting and decided to look into it a little bit more. After that, he started painting on his own time. He would grab these little gold panning tins, like, you know, if you were looking for gold in a river. Oh, Like panning okay. tins. And yeah. he would paint landscapes on the back and then sell them to tourists. So he was just pandering. Okay. Yeah, he was panning. panning. <laughs> <laughs> it was there. We were trying to grab it. Uh, well, he was doing that, but... In 1975, this is a big deal, Bob Ross caught a show on PBS called The Magic of Oil Painting with a very fiery and enthusiastic German host named William Alexander. All right, I have bothered myself up and I will fire in. When I, I use that word fire in, I love that word fire in because I like to fire in like this. I hate to, to go on the, I want to be fresh, I want to be powerful, I want to be the commander, the chief, the butter washer. On this show, Bill Alexander specifically taught a technique called wet on wet, which we'll get into a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But what it did was allowed you to make oil paintings very quickly and very easily. Mm-hmm. So because Bob was already selling paintings to tourists, he saw this as an opportunity and he started watching the show regularly and learning how to paint based off the techniques being taught on the show. And it took no time at all before he had started to kind of figure it out Mm -hmm. and was able to produce two complete paintings every lunch break while he was on break in the military. Then he would sell them to tourists. Mm Mm-hmm. He got so good at it, while he was still in the military, he was making more money from his paintings than he was as his military salary. God, jerk. I know. But why this is also important is, and this is maybe going to come as a surprise to people unless they've looked into him, at this time in his life, he was a drill sergeant, and he was known across the entire base as being a total hard ass. Really? Constantly yelling at people. (gasps) 
making them clean toilets. He was like screaming orders, all that kind of stuff. So you're telling me there's like a band of people out there in the United States who are like, oh, yeah, let me tell you about the (laughs) real Bob Ross. He definitely was known as a very tough drill sergeant Mm -hmm. to the point of he even had a nickname on base. Bust him up, Bobby. What's his name? Cool. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I wish I had a cool yeah, nickname. Yeah, he was rough. But this is important because he said painting allowed him to kind of be peaceful and happy. Sure. And he was a tough drill sergeant because that's what was required of mm-hmm. him. So he had to be very tough on them. But it was kind of at odds with his natural personality. Mm-hmm. And in 1981, he retired from the Air Force as a master sergeant. And vowed right then and there that he would not yell again. And as the story goes, he never raised his voice after that. He just said, this part of my life is over and I will not do that again. And that is why his persona is so calm and relaxing, was in direct opposition to his career in the military. I believe that. And also, I think that that adherence to his job, like doing his job really well, you can see that reflected in his later career. Absolutely. Yeah, he's very militant about everything he does, honestly. Yeah, he just does it. Now, I had mentioned that he had watched that show, The Magic of Oil Painting, with Bill Alexander. The first thing he did when he retired from the military was to track down William Alexander, because at this point, Bill Alexander was a big deal, and he was offering these classes and workshops and stuff like that. So Bob Ross found the class, Mm -hmm. met him, and then ended up studying with him for several months. Bill was very open and willing to share all of his techniques and secrets and everything else, took him under his wing as like a protege, and after several months, actually ended up hiring him to go on tour and travel as a teaching instructor for the Alexander Magic Art Company. Alexander's Magic Art Company was a group that offered classes to people as well as selling products and materials. This Mm -hmm. is all going to sound very familiar. Mm -hmm. And that's where he got his start with Bill Alexander. I think for the sake of this show, there is no way we could go forward without doing a little bit of a look at who Bill Alexander was. Yeah, I'm very curious. For those of you who don't know the story... This is the man who made Bob Ross, Bob Ross. Mm -hmm. And there would be no Bob Ross without Bill Alexander. So it's a little bit complicated when it comes down to it. Bill Alexander was born in 1915. He was quite the character. He was a German. And he was born during World War I. His father was a vet in the German army. Yikes. Mm -hmm. Okay, before we even go on, I gotta do it. What? (laughs) This week's fun fact. Yes. I just got to clear the air. Do it. He joined the army in World War II, (gasps) meaning Bill Alexander was a Nazi. Oh my god. Okay. Now I'm going to spin the story a little bit to save face there. Yes, he was absolutely a Nazi and fought in Uh. World War II against the Allied forces. He was shot three times, but... He hated it and was actually forced into the army. His dad was actually killed by Nazis for speaking out against the war because he said he didn't want his sons to ever join the war. He didn't believe in it. 
So he was very resentful of it, even though he had to serve and he was trying to find ways sure. out of it. I think that's probably true of the majority Absolutely. of Absolutely. Yeah, he yeah. was just a, a cog in the machine. So... Ugh, it sucks when you're a cog. Especially in a Nazi cog, <sighs> but... <laughs> <laughs> so he he was shot. The third time he was shot, he was sent to a hospital, and then he was ended up getting captured and became a POW. And uh, the Americans had captured him. Mm-hmm. This was a good thing, and he actually welcomed it because he wanted nothing to do with the war. He just wanted to paint, man. He just wanted to paint. And as he was a POW... He started painting portraits. Then he started painting portraits of soldiers. And the American soldiers loved his paintings. Really? Started asking him to like paint family members and stuff like that. They all became friends. Did you see his portraits? (laughs) Yeah, they're all very standard like 1940s style portraits. Are they good? Yeah, I mean, they're of the time. Okay. So he was painting these portraits for American soldiers and became such good friends with him. They actually gave him a full-fledged artist studio to work out of and he was like raking it in he was doing a good job even though he was a pfw weird war ends and he has nothing to go back to i mean of course not everything is decimated and he's resentful to begin with so he decided in 1952 to move to canada and then eventually to america but basically start a brand new life there cool so he moves there starts a family and tries to get his painting kind of up and running Mm -hmm. But that is a very interesting backstory about who this character is. We're going to flash forward in Bill's story to 1972 because he had worked his way into a PBS studio and managed to get a show. So he's like a good, good at selling himself. Yes. And he's quite the character. These are on YouTube. You can go watch his show mm-hmm. and you will be shocked right away if you have not seen it, that it is basically the Bob Ross show, just with an incredibly enthusiastic, uh, over the top German instead of Bob Ross, oh, which is stark contrast to who <laughs> is going to be coming up after him. <laughs> so the magic of oil painting started in 1972 and it actually ran all the way to 1982. So this is very interesting for the timing he even won an emmy he was the first painter to ever win an emmy for his daytime show it was very very successful and there's been a lot of talk about how in the world did this guy get eclipsed by bob ross and we'll talk about that so wait he was one quarter of the way towards an egot just gonna say that he was okay (laughs) i mean i don't know what other awards he ever won but i'm gonna say probably no other awards (laughs) (laughs) now This may sound familiar because if you watch the show, what you will see is Bill Alexander standing in front of a canvas, talking very enthusiastically about how to paint landscapes, Mm -hmm. in particular in the style of wet on wet, which is very specific. It's called a la prima. Now you're a working artist, especially a painter. Do you want to discuss what that technique is? Sure. Yeah. So wet on wet is basically what it sounds like. It was a technique that was developed long before either of these gentlemen were doing it. And really, it was just a way to get a painting done really quick, really quickly. Traditionally, with an oil painting, you do an underpainting and several layers, building it up over time, waiting for layers to dry. That takes 
weeks, months, years, just depends on the painter and their process. So it can be a really big thing. A la prima is used more for on the scene style paintings. So if you were going to go, say, out in nature and you're going to get a painting done right away, say you're an impressionist, you're going to go out there your Monet, you're going to paint your garden, but you got to do it quickly before the sun sets or the light changes too dramatically. So you'll mix up your paints and you'll do wet on wet. And without getting too in the trenches about it, it's about viscosity, thicker versus thinner and mm-hmm. paint sticking on top of other paint, even though it's still wet. Yeah. So it does have its setbacks in that you can't get the level of detail. Like I, I wouldn't do a a finely detailed portrait, but you can get really good ideas out this way. And so especially for artists who are working, oh, I don't know, like 100 years ago or 200 years ago where they couldn't take a photo or perhaps they just didn't want to take a photo. They wanted to capture the moment for what it was. This was a great process. Yeah. And this also allowed you to do it very quickly. Yes. Which was important because Bill's show, just like Bob Ross's would Mm be, was half an hour, you'd make a painting right there on the spot for everybody to see. So he had that going. And the point of this show was really to help uh, fill up classes that Bill was offering and to sell paints that he had, his line of paints. So this all may sound very familiar going forward. Just a snitch. (laughs) But that's why we needed to lay the groundwork because this is the person that Bob Ross sought out trained under and then would later go on to emulate one side note i do want to mention about the former nazi turned uh painting teacher the reason why he was so determined to have a show of painting Mm -hmm. is because he thought if everybody could learn how to paint the world would be a peaceful place. Oh, <laughs> I just thought that was really sweet. That's so sweet. <laughs> he was quite a character. Yes, he had a, an insane amount of enthusiasm. But overall, he was a really nice, easygoing guy. Very mm-hmm. friendly, very open. He just, the way he carried himself was uh, very different from, from Bob Ross. Yeah, Bob but, Ross is chill. He's high intensity. But regardless... Bob Ross took all of these ideas and was on the road at this time now in the early 80s, teaching the style of Bill Alexander being employed by Bill Alexander Mm -hmm. and offering these classes now as one of his teachers. He loved Bill Alexander. From all that I researched, he was a early on fan and their relationship was good for a time. (laughs) While he started working for Bill Alexander, he ended up back in Florida. He had almost no money. And he talked to his second wife. Her name was Jane. He had married her at some point in Alaska. I don't mean to undermine Jane's life. I'm sure it was full and rich. A quilt of (laughs) loveliness. But we're focused on, on Bob Ross. And he also left his son from his first marriage in Alaska. He had kind of a make it or break it kind of attitude. She said, okay, you know, follow your dreams. She was a super supportive spouse and said, take, you know, X amount of dollars. I really think it was like a grand. I can't remember the number, but he had a very limited amount of time and he was going to make it work. So working with Bill, 
He had joined Alexander Magic Art Supplies Company, was a traveling salesman and an instructor. And now we're going to jump to one of those fateful encounters in life. We all have them. Actually, little side note, my horrible thing that I did as a teenager that I referenced earlier led me to you. I had we had our own little fateful greatest moment of your life twist of fate <laughs> absolutely uh, and this is Bob Ross's uh, and it's just like a full pivot in the trajectory of his life this actually begins not with Bob but with the death of a son of a Washington D.C. couple their names were Walter and Annette Kowalski and their son died in a traffic accident and obviously his mother Annette became very sad But that sadness led to depression. She was severely depressed, and she recounted laying on the couch just watching TV. And anybody who's been depressed, that makes sense. You just don't have the energy to face your daily life. So she was watching TV and fell into a PBS hole, which honestly, (laughs) I think... I think most people who've struggled with depression at some point in their life know too well you're laughing because you know. <laughs> PBS hole is such a great term. I want a shirt that says that. I fell in the PBS hole um, and found herself watching Bill Alexander's show. She got really into it and her husband, Sweet Walter, and honestly, I think Walter's maybe the hero here. He sweetly decided to buy her tickets to go, or a ticket, to go and train with Bill Alexander. Initially, he had thought they were going to drive to Oregon to train because I guess that's where Bill was located. But he discovered that Bill had retired or he was no longer teaching. And it was suggested that they sign up for a class in Florida with one of his trained instructors, some rando named Bob Ross. And Annette was bummed. She was like seriously disappointed. (laughs) But she went anyway. I think it was just sort of like, I got to get out of this rut. I'll go take this dumb painting class with this rando in Florida. And they drove down to Florida. She took the class and it was like a light went on for her. And she saw his teaching style. She appreciated that he like took his time with everybody and just liked Bob's personality so much that afterwards she said, we go out to dinner with me and my husband, Walter. And Bob, being the super chill dude that he was, said, sure. He went out for a burger with them and by the end of it they had all agreed that Walter and Annette would go ahead and like get out a mortgage on their house, pool their assets and become basically Bob's agents. I remember reading a little bit about this. Is this correct that they basically pooled together their life savings? Yes. Like this isn't their just, full assets. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't like a little bit of money. This was literally everything they had. Yeah, and of course while they had lost their son, they still had a daughter. It wasn't like they were <laughs> nothing to lose, like let's burn our bridges and see where this lands. They just really believed in Bob. I actually I think Annette really believed in Bob and Walter really believed in Annette. He hadn't even been taught. <laughs> so whatever. And initially, it's it looked like it was a train wreck. It was a struggle. Money was super tight. There were no doors opening. Nobody was showing up at classes. And Bob was teaching classes in Washington, D.C. And 
basically anywhere that they could get a class together. He was actually so desperate to save money because remember, he was on a crazy tight budget of his own that he got a perm in order to save money on haircuts because that's right. Bob Ross has straight hair. (laughs) So he thought in his weird artist brain that getting a perm would make it like somehow more cost effective. I know as a permed person that you have to get a new (laughs) perm regularly. Otherwise, you have three inches of flat hair and the rest of your hair is curly. And that's a look that nobody can support. So I don't know that he actually saved money, but that was his try. I like that once he went down that road, there was no turning back. And he was like, well, I got a perm now because that's similar to you. You got a perm in the 80s and you still have, you basically have Bob Ross hair right now. (laughs) I don't think people really know what you look like, but you... Look very similar to Bob Ross. Basically twins. Yeah, like a pretty version of Bob Ross. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, what a... What a bummer of a decision to make early on. Yeah, it is said that he did not like his permed hair, but unfortunately, the Kowalskis dropped a buttload of money into branding, and that included (laughs) Bob Ross's curly hair. So he was stuck, and he had to include that for the rest of his life. And sorry, Bob, but it worked. And he really did resent it for the rest of his life. Yeah, I mean... Can you imagine the indignity of regular perming as a man in, like, 1994? (laughs) Okay. So, anyway, he's working with the Kowalskis. There were several false starts, including this story, which in one of the documentaries we watched, Annette recounts how some guy showed up to his class, and he was the only person at the class. And Bob refused to cancel the class, gave this guy his painting lesson, And the guy said, I'll invest a million dollars if you give me 40% of your future earnings. And they all said, no, thank you. (laughs) That would have been such a good investment for that guy, too. I would have been like, cool. And then just retired and been like, sorry, bro, I only made a million (laughs) dollars. Changed my name and started my career back over. Yeah, yeah. Go into accounting. Anyway, after several false starts, nothing was really panning out. But in 1983, Bob walked into a PBS station in Muncie, Indiana, of all places. I don't actually know how they found themselves there. It was just this, like, spiderweb effort of trying to make it work. Because, again, Annette and Walter had put everything into Bob, Mm -hmm. which is bananas. I can't even imagine that. But he walks in and convinces them to do a Joy of Painting show. Yeah, it's really fascinating the way this all came together. And then from here, it really is more organic. Like, yeah, starts locally as all. It's kind of like a radio show, that same idea. Whereas if it picks up locally, it kind of spreads to a couple more stations Mm -hmm. and spreads to a couple more. It's like an infection. This was the moment right here, honestly. Yes. Where... Everything changes. Everything has kind of led to this point. Yeah. And I don't want to make it sound like Annette and Walter were idiots because they really weren't. They saw something in Bob and they were not wrong. They were in no way wrong because they are loaded from Bob. So they put their money in. And I think it was probably a period of absolute, like, what have we done level terror. But Bob was their friend also. Uh, Like Annette, at one point, she gave an interview where she said Bob was a tyrant. And then she kind of backpedaled and she said, 
I don't mean that he was a bad person because she loved him. They were really, really, really good friends. But she said his work ethic, he was always, always pushing. And he just was, I I get why they put their money in him. I think they really had faith in him because he had faith in him. And he had an idea. Now this goes back to Bill Alexander is we're talking about 1982, 1983. 1983, Bill Alexander retired the show. So there was no longer a host on PBS hosting a painting show. Yeah, this is 1983. And Bob Ross was like, hey... I got a brilliant idea. How about I do the exact same show? The exact same show. And there has been a lot of jokes about this with people over the years saying there is literally nothing that separates these two other than personality. Yeah. Their techniques, their style, their talent. Everything is identical. Their entire careers are mirrored of each other. It's just that what it comes down to is personality. But... This was Bob's big idea, was not a big idea, but more like a continuation. Well, I think that originally his idea was different, but Bob went back to what had worked for Bill Alexander. Black background, it's about the viewer, the artist, and the easel. To viewers, it seemed that Bob was spontaneously painting. The way that he spoke to the viewer was really casual and friendly, and he was doing things like, Let's go crazy here. Let's paint a cloud. <laughs> so it felt like he was just like, you know what? I'm, I got this. But the reality is he had carefully planned out each piece because he was a professional. He wasn't a dummy. Yeah. He's not going to get up there and spitball it. That's stupid. And he was many things, but none of them were stupid. So he actually, what he would do was paint three paintings for each And he would do a first, like, initial painting to work it out, like, figure out what he wanted to do. And uh, Annette says that he would lay in bed at night and think about every single step so that he could deliver it to his viewers in a way that was, like, consumable and easy to understand. He was very meticulous in the way that he approached painting and teaching. When I saw him paint, and he would make these what seemed like off-the-cuff remarks like, Mm -hmm. what happens if we put a little tree right here? I remember getting a little nervous. Like, you're going to screw up that entire painting, not knowing that his reference painting that he had already painted was right off camera, right in front of him. Yeah, so he would have it off camera, a fully finished piece, usually a more, like a superior version of what he was able to do because he had more time when he was on his own. And when he was filming, sometimes, you know, he would get a little hung up. So his on-film piece would probably be the least, out of the three he created for each, the the least complicated. Mm-hmm. But it was also, I don't know if you saw this too, there was no edits to it. Like, they didn't cut yeah. forward. This was all in real time. Yeah, and that was part of the allure because he would say, look, guys, I'm doing it with you right here. We're doing this. And you could and still can watch him create a landscape in 30 minutes or less. And that's yeah. that's why. And he made it so accessible. Um, I also mentioned a third piece that he did, and I mm-hmm. feel like I should touch on that before we... Uh, get lost in his story 
The third piece was created. It was much more detailed, and it was for his books. Right. So how-to books. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Annette would f- photograph those for him, but it was a much more meticulously created version of the piece he had done on camera. That's pretty wild. So every painting that he did for the show, there was actually three versions of it. Yes, absolutely. And one of the things, though, that really made Ross so... I don't know, that je ne sais quoi, that certain special thing that he had was he took out the art jargon. We're both steeped in the arts. We can drop the terms and all of that. But for the average person, that's what is off-putting about art. It's inaccessible. Mm -hmm. It's elitist. All of these things. Ross didn't like that. He wanted people to enjoy literally the joy of painting, which, of course, there is great joy to be found, especially that thrill of an accomplishment of creating a piece that is anything but a stick figure. And he was that doorway for people to just go, oh, I can do it. Not that I need to be a professional artist, but I can create. And I think there is a fire in each of us to create. And he knew that and he wanted to kindle that fire for people there's also a very interesting approach to his technique in relaying painting in a very calm manner Mm -hmm. which is counter to how you learn how to paint in an academic (laughs) setting kind of a panicky situation absolute high intensity you're screwing that up you blah 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 judgy he was very much like there are no such thing as mistakes happy mistakes right happy accidents yeah happy accidents that was his thing and so I think that was really interesting, too. He had a very calm approach. This was all also, this goes back to him. Nothing was by coincidence. This was all very meticulously planned out. Yeah, absolutely. I know he planned his whole look, his approach, his voice. His... He thought his look was timeless. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, yeah, he wanted something. And you know what? I would say that worked because tuning in year after year after year, it was familiar. It was never mm-hmm. like this changing thing. And so... No, he did not change his style. I think that's often overlooked is not only the simplicity of his paintings, but that he made painting okay to just enjoy and mm-hmm. have mistakes, which in an academic setting, as we both, you know, were art students, it, that is the total opposite. Yeah. There's it's not about so pleasure. much stress on you when you're in front of your painting instructor. So... Yeah, I don't know. I thought that was really brilliant, honestly. Yeah, and he also did things like he used big brushes, simple techniques. Nobody is going to argue that Bob Ross is a high artist. But he also used a limited palette, meaning colors like four or five colors. You never saw him with a huge palette full of paint. It was just a few. I mean, there was a lot of paint he used. He had a huge palette. He had a huge palette and he would way overuse his paint, which I think was a sales thing because he's like, put out half of a tube of paint when you only need, you know, a quarter teaspoon of it, whatever. I felt like he had a palette to match that hair. Like it was huge. Also, I know that like the smart ones would pick up on his palette when he started and they would see colors that would come in later when he was like, let's just see what happens here. And they were catching on that this was definitely not just spur of the moment. Of course, you can't just put yellow in a sea of blues and be like, (laughs) oh, I'm just going to put a light here. Uh, He also spoke with, in a way that, Really, I don't know. It bolstered the confidence of his viewers. He's like, you can do this. Look, I'm just this weird guy with big hair. I'm doing it. (laughs) And I don't know. There was something about it where you would watch him and you go, oh, yeah, definitely. I can do that. 
And he reached out to his audience in an unprecedented way. He would request suggestions and photos like, what do you think I should do next? And he would listen to his audience. That was huge. He would show photos like, look, look what Gloria did in Muncie. You know, she made this great painting and he would share it. That was great affirmation and good feedback to his audience. Like he was listening to them. Yeah. And This is one thing that I will say after all this research on Bob Ross is he was incredibly sincere. Yes. I think we live in a a day and age when we try and find things in every celebrity to take them down a notch. Mm -hmm. I think he was just a really simple dude and that he sincerely just wanted to show people how to paint. Yes. And at the height of all of this, he was receiving 200 letters a day of fan Uh. mail. And he was responding to them. Sweet Bob. And he was just really kind, very, very giving. And I just, all of this research, I kept waiting and waiting and waiting to be like, there you go. There was just the money grabbing, like, normal dude. And it just did not happen. Like, he sincerely was just in it for the long haul and treated everybody with respect. And I think that that's really... Kind of rare, honestly. Yeah, he was absolutely invested in succeeding, but he understood that that success would come from viewers, not in the short term, but viewers who subscribed to him as a person and wanted to see him succeed. He had an insight in a way that I think a lot of people forget. They just... Mm, I would say contemporary celebrities are looking for the flash in the pan situation because that's what our culture has become. But he understood the value of creating relationships. And that's what he did because holy smokes, I the only other person I can think of is, of course, Mr. Rogers, mm-hmm. who had that same, you know, calming effect, but also just a sincerity that is unrivaled. You can't like neither of these men have had like big scandals come out about their life. There's just nothing. There were just people doing a really good job. And I I really appreciate that. They took it as a job. Now, you talked about, too, not that immediate success, which most celebrities want today, but learning how to build. Mm -hmm. His story isn't an overnight success. It seems like it was, but it's not. No, absolutely not. So one of the things that led to his success is he would invest viewers in his life so he began to talk about little details of his life he would talk about you know my son my wife just little details that would make the person be like oh yeah your wife or i remember when his son did that thing or whatever and he also started bringing on rescued wildlife (laughs) which okay so we watched this little documentary and there's this story about how at one point he became sick and he had Annette carry on his job of a daily fish feeding in a <laughs> pond because he was worried about the fish. So wonderful, sweet Bob. He also, I, I think that we can't not mention Peapod, his squirrel. Oh, yeah. He brought on a bunch of animals, but Peapod the squirrel was uh, a celebrity in its own right. I don't even know if it was boy or girl. I but. feel like this is such simple times. Like Just so pure. He had nothing else to gain than just doing his job. I don't know. There's just, just something. spreading love and light. I don't know. There's just something really enduring about this story. Yes. And then, of course, the show grew exponentially. It just was slowly picked up by, you know, 
this PBS station, that PBS station. Throughout the country, it just spread very organically as popularity spread from one place to the next and eventually around the world. His business partners, the Kowalskis, were there the whole way. He didn't, like, dump them or anything. They just continued to work. In fact, Annette guest taught on his show. Yeah. It's so sweet because she liked painting flowers, so he had her come on because she had been a student of his this whole time. Mm-hmm. And in the documentary we watched, the Kowalski family does not mince words. They said that all of them, at times, everybody except Bob, and that includes his wife and his sons, uh, wanted to stop because mm-hmm. it was so much. But Bob never once wanted to stop. He was just, he just knew. He had his eyes on the prize and he loved what he was doing. And it's cute because I think it was Walter that said, we all wanted to give up, but nobody wanted to give up on the same day. So that's what <laughs> kind of kept them going. Do you remember, I don't remember entirely the the day-to-day of recording the seasons, because if I remember correctly, it was crazy. Like, oh, yeah. He, he didn't work long hours for extended amounts of time. It was like he came in high potent and did it all in these bursts. Yeah. And like, then would just leave. And it would basically be like a season done in no time. Yeah. Within a few days, he would shoot all of them. And then, like, a few reshoots, of course, where there were problems or whatever. But, yeah, he would go in and be like, okay, that was episode one. Let's start on episode two. I can't even fathom that. But that's what he was doing. That was the pace at which he was working. Thankfully, the Kowalskis and his wife Jane did not give up. Instead, they began to use the show to promote and sell his own line of books, classes, teacher trainings, as well as classes taught by trained teachers and, of course, art supplies. Now, the art supplies we have to spend a moment on because this is a touchy subject. The honeymoon of Bill Alexander and Bob Ross uh, came to a, a screeching halt in 1991, and it is because there was a New York Times profile on Bob Ross, and he did not mention Bill by name as his mentor, Okay. And instead said, he's a major competitor, this other person. And Bill took that and was deeply, deeply hurt and offended that he now, Bob was seeing him as the competition and not as his mentor that had helped mm-hmm. give him his career. Because Bill also had his own line of supply. Absolutely. Yeah. That's how he had made his fortune too. And Bill flew off the handle basically and was like, he betrayed me. Then he took it a bit further and said, he stole everything from me. He stole the format of my show, my mm-hmm. technique. He stole how to like build the empire, all of that. And then has, you know, this absurdness to not only mention me, but then it kind of imply that he's better at it than I am. Here, okay, I'm going to back up real quick because he's actually, to unpack all this, there is some truth to it. But hmm. I'm going to say both of these guys um, aren't going to win like an Artist of the Year award. Not even So to have up. two very mediocre painters who have wild success arguing about who's better, okay. maybe that's not what to focus <laughs> Which on. Which millionaire is better? <laughs> right. I don't think that's really it. It was more feeling hurt that Bob Ross had blown up. And then now he was like raking in the dough with paints and everything else and had eclipsed his his teacher. 
here's where it gets a little complicated. Okay. And I didn't find anything to really go against this. So in 1983, let's start back. It's not... It's being implied that Bob Ross kind of steamrolled him, took over his show, and then basically, like, did everything bigger and better. And that's okay. why Bill was resentful. But that's not true. No. What had happened is in 1983, Bill retired. Yeah. Bob Ross saw an opening. Not only that, there's a very famous uh, commercial that was shot where Bill came in and did this absurd handing of the brush to Bob Ross. Yeah, well, he didn't just do it once. He did it twice. And let's just play the clip because it's so amusing. I hand over now that almighty brush to almighty man, and that is Bob Ross. Congratulate you. Thank you very much, Bill. We look forward to seeing you right here on this channel for the joy of painting each week. So not only did he hand over his, his mighty brush to Bob Ross, gave him his blessing, but then in the pilot episode, Bob Ross went like gushed about him and said, you know, everything I know is from this man and I'm hoping yeah. to keep on this tradition. So let it be known there was no indication that he went behind his back and stole anything. No, he paid to do the teacher training and was an employee. There was no like breach of an NDA or anything like that. Also, Bill had was done. He had yeah. retired. So Bob's just continuing it on. Now, flash forward years later. So this is years and years of being like, yeah, great. Do your own thing. 1987. As the story goes, a representative of Alexander Art Supplies, which was Bill's art, mm -hmm. how he was making his money, said that due to the massive success of Bob Ross's show on PBS, they couldn't keep up with the, the demand of oil paints and contacted Bob Ross and said, you need to start your own line of oil paints because we can't keep up with the demand. That's so weird. as the story goes, it's also dumb. It is like, dumb, but as more. the story goes, basically Bill's representatives suggested it to him, <laughs> and of course they took it up. They started their own line, and that's really where Bob Ross's empire exploded was with the oil paints. And what had happened was it became, you know, at the height like a fifteen million dollar empire or something like that. Yep. One other thing that I have a problem with about Bill having a blow up about all of this. He just got his panties in a twist. He got he his panties. Yes. I mean, that does suck to see somebody go on to bigger and better things when no, you taught doesn't. them what they know. But this is the thing that really bothered me about him is in, like basically until the end of his life, he kept saying over and over that Bob Ross, above all, stole his technique of wet on wet painting that he had invented. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like as two art historians speaking to you right now, I'll say if Van Gogh, who did it? If Monet, who did even back to the 1600s in mm -hmm. Dutch paintings. Every artist has done it who works in oil painting. To hear please. some random disgruntled German say that he invented this technique and Bob Ross stole it from him. You got to calm down a little bit. Okay, that's silly. All that being said, I don't want to paint Bill as being this like really bitter old German. You don't want to paint him that way? <laughs> yeah, ex-Nazi. <laughs> I just, I do think he was pretty offended. And I think that it, it was a powder keg. And I think that 1991 article was just the moment he was waiting for to say, all right, this enough is enough. But it does suck. 
Bob never really addressed any of it. He had a lot of critics, by the way, over the course of his entire career. Everybody ripped on Bob Ross as being like a hack and stuff. To his defense, Bob never once sought shows, wanted to be in shows, wanted to be in museums, anything like that. No. He just wanted to show people how to paint in a very simple way. Yeah. So it really negated all criticism. Yeah. I mean, just they could they couldn't find a leg to stand on. Well, I mean, what are art critics doing critiquing Bob Ross? Calm down, people. Like he's not trying to show at the Met or the Louvre. He's I mean, you can't, but he, he, that wasn't his goal. That's silly. He was doing easy, simple, 30-minute landscapes. Everybody just have a seat. Also, if you compare the two, why is it that Bob Ross became so much more successful? Because he's radical. But they had the same, virtually the same exact career, even mm-hmm. success. I mean, mm-hmm. as we said, Bill won an Emmy and he had a hit show. One quarter of the way toward an EGOT. <laughs> I would say ultimately the difference being that it was about the way you presented yourself. Yep. And to an American audience, this fiery European German painter who's like, grab the brush and you will do this. He was very intense versus Bob Ross, who came across like a laid back hippie. Mm-hmm. He was just all American. And I think that's what really people just were drawn to his character more. He was just loving and gentle and sweet. And I just think it was just, that's the way the cookie crumbles. Yep. It is a very interesting little side note. I think that people always looking for an angle or a story, yeah. like we said, want to spin this more than it is, but it's just not. It is yeah. simply down to... Uh, Bob just was more successful in well, his story. And Bob was just kind of more popular as a person. Like, I'm sorry for Bill Alexander. Cool that you weren't an intentional Nazi that and that you made your own career in the U.S., but that sucks that you maybe had a less interesting personality than Bob Ross. That's just the way it goes. Some people are more interesting than others. And Bob's weird, boring personality was somehow more interesting in this weird (laughs) way that doesn't make any sense because it does seem boring it was so successful though i mean how many was it 30 seasons or something it was a lot i don't know wait no it was 31 seasons well it went from january 11th 1983 to may 17th 1994 (laughs) is So many episodes. Very long and successful career on TV. (laughs) Holy cow. Well, a couple years before that, in 1992, his wife, his second wife, Jane, died of cancer. And then he fell ill after that. But he continued to work and create quality content for his viewers. And he really didn't burden them with his own sadness and the difficulties of his life, which mounted at this time it was a lot and he just continued to bring that same like chill loving hippie vibe even though he wasn't a hippie to his to his (laughs) filming and his show ran as you said until 94 but let's take a moment not to underestimate what a true hustler bob ross was (laughs) he worked so hard on his brand of bringing art to everybody he was also a skilled self-promoter i mean with the gall to go into muncie indiana and just be like hey give me a show (laughs) and they're like cool okay i don't even 
I can't even wrap my mind around that, but that's his personality. He also began to appear on things that were relevant at the time. Of course, it seems silly now, but he went on the Phil Donahue show, which was enormously popular. And then in the 90s, he did an ad for MTV. If you're in our generation, you super remember it. Yeah. It's so great. Look it up on YouTube or whatever. He actually, interestingly, turned down an offer to appear on Oprah when he realized she didn't want to talk about painting, but about his relationship. And he didn't want to give that. He just wanted to keep his private life private and said, no thanks, Oprah. I mean, cool, but bye. And his focus was purely on the art. Yeah, and the privacy was, like we said, a reoccurring theme, so much so that in 1994, he was diagnosed with lymphoma and nobody knew it. Like, he kept it super private, only his very, very close friends and a couple family knew about it. Mm-hmm. But he just kept painting and just kept up everything as though it was going to go straight forward. He started to get more and more tired. And as the as it got closer to the end, mm-hmm. the chemo made his hair start to fall out. So he actually wore a wig at the end mm-hmm. because he did not want to give anybody this illusion that things were changing. Mm-hmm. And he painted basically up to the end i mean he really did go up towards almost the very end and out of nowhere to everybody's shock because he was so private he died on Mm -hmm. july 4th 1995 in florida at age 52 from cancer and it was definitely not a sudden death he knew it was coming. he knew it was coming but the average kind of audience member nobody knew this was coming and this was quite a shock and he was very young considering Mm -hmm. so out of nowhere that was that and bob ross was just Gone. gone yeah and over and This led to what do you do with this empire? I mean, at this point, it was a multi-million. He died a multi-millionaire. Yes. I want to take a moment because I don't know if people know this either. This, I don't, this blew my mind. He was a multi-millionaire and never sold a single one of his paintings from the show. Wow. This is crazy. Okay, so he made three paintings a show. Yep. As you had said. It is estimated that he had 1,143 paintings that were produced just for the show alone because he had three of each. He himself said, considering all of the years and years and years of demos and everything else, he actually painted over 30,000 pieces. That's a lot. Never sold a single piece. The only time he ever sold his art was when he was in Alaska, first getting his start to tourists. That's it. Once his show took off, never sold a single piece. He would actually take all of his work... And he would donate a piece to every PBS show that was airing his show so that they could use it in auctions to fundraise for their own places. Well, just to keep PBS on the air. Absolutely. And that's what he did. And so it's really fascinating. He also gave away pieces to fans when they would ask and stuff like that. It is so bizarre. And one of the questions that has come up over the years increasingly is what happened to all of Bob Ross's work. Mm-hmm. Myself included, there have been many times when I thought, wouldn't it be really fun to just have a Bob Ross on the Oh, wall? yeah. I looked on eBay at one point. <laughs> Anybody who has thought that would be fun will quickly find that is virtually impossible. Mm-hmm. For as many paintings that are, were created, the odds of you ever finding a Bob Ross for sale are slim to none. Yeah. And it is because... <laughs> Almost all of them that remain are in one location. 
<laughs> and or they are nowhere. Yeah. Huh? I I'm, can guess. Okay. They are all in a warehouse in Virginia. I wouldn't have guessed that, but I know the owners. Okay, yes. Bob Ross Incorporated, run by none other than... The Kowalskis. That's right. They have nearly all of his work sitting in cardboard boxes and numbered, and that's it. And they have zero interest in ever selling them. They're just sitting there. Interestingly, though, and this is funny for anybody who ever saw his appearance on The Donahue Show is they asked him about being in museums and stuff. And he said, I'm never going to be in something like the Smithsonian. In 2019, representatives of the Smithsonian visited and selected four pieces for their permanent collection that are going to now go on display. And it's funny because they took one piece that was like a really, really solid work. And then they took three others which were all three versions of the same painting so they could show them all together and then since then recently he's been in like two or three different museum shows Mm -hmm. and i think that what has happened is he's being placed into the grand scheme of the canon of art and his own contribution Mm -hmm. i don't think there's any illusion that he was like a master painter no but he's part of a huge a huge part of american history Absolutely. And so it's really interesting to see uh, how that's played out. And his show, by the way, was steady. It was, I mean, constantly showing on PBS. Absolutely. And you can watch Bob Ross on Netflix and YouTube. He has a channel on YouTube that is actually run by the Kowalskis, and it has more than a million subscribers. I believe it. Even now. Everybody's got to go to sleep. And I actually read that <laughs> I read that a station in the UK started replaying old Bob Ross episodes to help with the stress of COVID. Oh, isn't that's that cute. so sweet? In 2014, there was a blog uh, called 538. You remember blogs? They analyzed <laughs> all of the nearly 400 live painting episodes and reported that 91 percent of Bob Ross's paintings contained at least one tree. <laughs> 44% included clouds. I'm so sure they were all happy and little. 39% included mountains. And 34% included mountain lakes. Oh, there you go. And as you said, he estimated more than 30,000 paintings. But his work rarely contained human subjects or signs of life. Like, I obviously he didn't paint like animals or humans because that would be... Far too complicated. Who knows if he could even do that. Right. But certainly not in 30 minutes. So that was never it. On rare occasions, he would incorporate something like a cabin. Like I always, when I watched Bob Ross, was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We've got a cabin Look out, folks. There's a cabin. There's a wisp of smoke. Yeah. Um, It was great. In 2015, uh, Twitch hosted a Bob Bob Ross marathon. And it was so popular that they began a weekly rebroadcast. Uh, Ross has been portrayed in TV and film and video games like The Family Guy, Boondocks, Deadpool 2, and Smite. Google actually celebrated the his 70th, 70th birthday on October 29th, 2012, and it portrayed a Ross painting uh, within the letter G in a landscape. <laughs> Cute. There's a board game called Bob Ross, The Art of Chill, available in Target stores. <laughs> okay. 
this is all like Kowalski licensing stuff. Well, he's so, just become this like pop culture cult icon now. Absolutely. But my very favorite is the most obvious, a Bob Ross Chia Pet. Oh, nice. Isn't that like perfect? That's really perfect. Absolutely. Uh, in 2020, the makers of Magic the Gathering, remember that? My, yeah. my brother went through a weird 90s totally. Magic the Gathering phase. They announced a limited release of Bob Ross paintings that had been adapted to card work. Oh, that's funny. You forgot one major thing in pop culture. What? 2019, uh, Halloween, I dressed up as Bob Ross. Oh, yes, that was a major pop cultural event. It's on Wikipedia, if I remember correctly. (laughs) We should put that picture not on our Instagram, but on our our Patreon. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys. Well, wow, what a story. He's just a really fun 80s story. Absolutely. Quintessential 80s. You... Who doesn't love Bob Ross? He did nothing wrong. He only brought joy. Yeah. Except, I mean, it really except is. Except for to Bill Alexander. I feel like this was just a story that we needed in all the nonsense and chaos and craziness. It's okay to sometimes just hear a good heartwarming story. Yeah. So just accept this as our offering to you before you go back into the dumpster fire of Not of all life. people are bad. Some people right. are good. All right, everybody. Well, we hope you enjoyed this dive into the the life of Bob Ross. We mm-hmm. sure did enjoy researching this one. Absolutely, this it was, was a fun. Total, total joy. If you want to follow us, we're on Instagram at Laser Graves. Our personal sites. I'm at Death at Thirty Three RPM. I'm at Mariah Rose Wimmer. As always, if you want to catch any of our back episodes, you can go to LaserGraves.com. And if you feel like this. Uh, podcast has value and you really like what we're doing mm-hmm. you can support us on patreon we're at patreon.com slash where you'll get all kinds of extra bonus material absolutely stuff just came out that you're missing out on if you're not a patron how could you do that and as always go support all of our friends and fellow podcasters we will share their shows throughout the week on our instagram and until then uh, i hope you just have a good time and if you're having trouble sleeping Put on old episodes of Bob Ross. And remember not to be a Nazi cog. (laughs) Okay. Bye. Signing out. Bye. (laughs)